Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Robert Chase is Associate Professor of History at Stony Brook University. His areas of research and teaching include state and racial politics, African-American and Latinx history, urban history, labor history and working class culture, critical race theory, political and sexual violence, social movements, and civil rights. Today we'll be discussing his book, We Are Not Slaves, State Violence, Coerced Labor, and Prisoners' Rights in Postwar America. Dr. Chase, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I'm really excited about the opportunity to talk to you about my work. Could you briefly, to start off, give us a quick overview of your book? Historians can never do anything quickly, but I will endeavor to do my best. My book, entitled We Are Not Slaves, Coerced Labor, State Violence, and Prisoners' Rights in Postwar America, is really an attempt to offer an intervention into the fields, the growing fields, a very rich field of carceral state literature, mass incarceration, civil rights, black power, the Chicano movement, and also questions of sexuality and masculinity in the second half of the 20th century, which is to say it does a lot. And so the aim of my work is to try to make it more intersectional so that while the subject is the prisoners' rights movement in the American South and principally Texas is the narrative that drives the study, it also attempts to intersect with a number of historiographical fields by looking at things from the bottom up. That is to say, from the prisoners' perspective themselves. And so as such, it is really the the first broad-ranging study of the prisoners' rights movement in the U.S. South, principally in Texas during the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s. It's therefore a regional study of civil rights cases, but told through the lens of the prisoners themselves, And the narrative is centered on the social movement that resulted in Texas through a landmark civil rights case, which at the time was the longest running civil rights trial, Ruiz v. Estelle, decided in 1980. But it's also about all the cases that came before it, but again, told through the perspective of a social movement. And Ruiz, which I know we'll discuss further, was a massive omnibus lawsuit that outlawed the uh, practice of having prisoners act as openly armed convict guards. I should say that my work is about two different simultaneous narratives. One is the, the prison systems narrative, a penological narrative And the book is divided into three parts. One I call a biography of coerced labor and state violence to show the two-sided narratives. The second is resistance, which is the prisoners' rights movement themselves emanating first from a single prisoner and then expanding out to a wide-based social movement. And then third is how the system responded with militarization, with gang injunction laws, with a kind of outsourcing of state violence to prison gangs where white Aryan Brotherhood 
members hunted down African-American and Chicano prisoners who were engaged in civil rights struggles and resulted in what I call a sunbelt militarized prison. But the two narratives that the book discusses is one, the prisons, I call it an external narrative, an agribusiness model narrative that made the argument that Texas prisons were efficient, were cost-effective and cheap and orderly, all the things that they argued that prisons outside of the South were not. And they looked to Attica as an example of some of the lawlessness outside of the U.S. South, so they called it. They looked to George Jackson and the struggles in California prison system and made a counter-argument that Texas prisons were self-sufficient and extremely low cost. I mean, just to give you one example, in 1951, the average cost of maintaining a prisoner in 44 states was $2.23. But in Texas, it was really very low at 49 cents. And this low cost feature continued into the late 1970s, where Texas spent only $47 million to hold about 23,000 prisoners, which was about five times less than what New York and California spent on a prison populations of 18 and 20,000 prospectively. So it was a very cheap system to run. And that was the argument that the prison system made. But behind this narrative of business efficiency centered on an agribusiness narrative of cotton picking, which was for state-made use, was a story of prisoners who acted as guards, which is what kept the system, uh, in part, so cheap. For instance, Texas not only did not pay their prisoners anything for their labor, but they had the lowest guard-to-prisoner ratio at 12 prisoners to every guard, where the national average was three prisoners to every guard. But the reason they could do this is because they uh, depended upon a system of labor division. And in this system of labor division, other prisoners who were known as trustees or building tenders acted as guards. And they were openly armed. They had certain privileges that allowed them to roam the prison freely, to have its keys, to move a prisoner from one cell prison or wing to another, and within that system, they created an internal system of slavery over prisoner bodies, buying and selling in a rapacious sexual trade the bodies of other prisoners. So while most regular prisoners worked in the fields as unpaid, coerced, 20th century slave labor, these privileged prisoners constructed an internal slave economy where they bought and sold the bodies of other prisoners as sexual subjects, objects of rape, and as domestic cell servants. This system was a hierarchical labor regime that constituted a vicious sex trade in which building tenders were given the tacit approval from the prison administration to use their power to rape other prisoners and to engage in the buying and selling of these bodies as a sexual commodity that signified cultural standing and societal power. It also created a racial hierarchy because the head building tender of any prison system who generally had more power 
over prisoners than all correctional officers, except perhaps for the warden or assistant warden, was usually white, and it favored white prisoners. So it's this hidden division of labor that connoted racial, sexual, and gender power and sexual power that prisoners sought to expose over two decades of prisoner litigation and political organizing. And so in this way, I think about truth and mythology and litigation as a truth-telling project, and I draw heavily, for instance, on Richard Slotkin's notions of mythology and violence, where he wisely wrote that myth describes a process credible to its audience by which knowledge is transformed into power, and that narratives of terrible mythic power can therefore, quote, reach out of the past to cripple, incapacitate, or strike down the living. And so what these prisoners tried to do was to counter this terrible mythology of efficiency, low cost, and order with a counter-narrative that I call a carceral dialectic of the fact that they were indeed slaves of the state. And so they offered a counter slave narrative. And that's the scope and focus of the book. And of course, then I take it through the 1980s to also discuss the role of a transition from the southern prison plantation to a sunbelt militarized prison system. How does your work intervene in prior treatments of prisoner rights movements? Mm, Yeah, there's been so much written on that. So this book really draws upon this rich body of new and emerging work on the carceral state. I would say it offers a critical intervention to several disciplinary approaches to prisoners' rights and court intervention, while also taking up civil rights action law and social movements through the lens of both radicalism and how people organize, not just mobilize, as Charles Payne put it. You know, until recently, most historical and sociological scholarship had ignored this movement altogether and or been dismissive and critical of this work, thinking, for instance, that the California radical prisoners' rights movement offered a kind of, as Eric Cummins called it, a naive casting of prisoners as society's leaders. And he saw it as a fatal mistake that actually led to the decline of radical politics. And, you know, sociological work tended to think about prisoners' rights as something that endangered the tranquility of an otherwise ordered and authoritarian prison community. But the past decade or so of prisoner movements and Black Lives protest has occurred within a a context of a change in historical scholarship. Dan Berger's Captive Nation, Heather Thompson's Blood in the Water, one looking at a, a wider metaphorical shift in Black political radical imagination emanating from California, and Heather Thompson looking at Attica and its legacy have caused historians to rethink the role of prisoners' rights and prisoner radicalism in the 20th century. My contribution is to look beyond the tragedies at Attica and Soledad Prison 
to think about the two decades of struggle by prisoners across the nation who demanded that institutions of criminal justice also act as spaces of social justice. So one of the contributions that I make is to place my work alongside that of other new work, but to offer the South and the American Southwest as critical terrain for the transition to prisoners' rights and therefore to challenge the declension narrative of the 1970s as the decline of civil rights work, of active political agitation, and of the dawn of the carceral state, when in fact the carceral state was challenged and quite vehemently. So my work is a two-pronged study of this challenge on the one hand, and then the coalescing around a new kind of carceral state on the other. So I would say very quickly that my work offers five key historiographical interventions. The first, as I said, is to look at the U.S. South and Southwest as critical to the construction of the carceral state and the prisoners' rights movement, a story that really has yet to been told until the publication of this book. The other one, and one very important for me, is to intervene on policy scholars and scholars of prisoners' rights cases emanating from social science to rethink the top-down legal and institutional histories that focused almost solely on attorneys, prison administrators, and judges, and to reconsider that narrative by considering the agency and voice of the prisoners themselves through oral histories, prisoner letters, and legal testimonies. As such, my work really reconsiders a court-bound approach by returning the focus to the prisoners themselves and chronicling their story through the lens of prisoner-initiated civil rights complaints. And this I'm really drawing heavily on, on uh, Riza Golubov in her work, The Lost Promise of Civil Rights, when she argued that legal change does not begin with the doctrines courts create or even the radical strategies that lawyers employ. It begins on what individuals experience and when they invoke, as she said, the machinery of the law on their own behalf. So my work took that phrase and decided to look at the people on the ground who were the prisoners who invoked the machinery of law on their own behalf. The third intervention is to recenter prison labor and profitability as a key organizing feature of mass incarceration. On its face, this would seem like an obvious choice, but a lot of literature has not fully taken up the role of prison labor and profitability. But I also consider prison labor as more than work. I see prison labor also as a regime of carceral discipline and power that ordered all of prison society, race, sexuality, and hierarchy within this system. So as such, as I mentioned before, it's really an intersectional work that sees labor as a site of power that intersects with spatial control, gender identity, sexuality and sexual violence, and race and racial privileges. The fourth is to move beyond really the binary that has seen the carceral state and mass incarceration through largely, although this is changing, but largely through a black and white framework that has ignored and in some cases omitted Latina, Latino incarcerations 
and how they too faced unique challenges. And yet, at least in the story that I tell in Texas, how these challenges allowed them to create an interracial alliance between Chicano and African-American and even some radical white prisoners. And they did that by constructing this slaves of the state narrative and seeing their incarceration as one that rendered African-Americans, Chicanos, and whites, but uh, mostly African-Americans and Chicanos, as slaves. And in seeing that, they found a shared repression that allowed them to then look towards interracial collective resistance. And then finally, my work makes the case and intervenes to uh, sexuality, gender, and masculinity by making the case that prisoners' bodies themselves were a critical battleground in the post-World War II period. My work attempts to recover through legal testimony and affidavits and oral histories a lost history of what I call state-orchestrated prison rape and an internal prison economy centered on sex trafficking. So this is really the first historical book on prisoners' rights that takes prison rape seriously, not just as a function of a prisoner's pathology, as social sciences typically cast prison sexual violence, but rather as a, as a tool of state power and discipline. And so here I draw inspiration from Daniel McGuire's book, At the Dark End of the Street, where she wrote that if we understand the role rape and sexual violence played in African-Americans' daily lives during the modern civil rights movement, we have to reinterpret, if not rewrite, the history of the civil rights movement. So on the same score, I began to see a litany of documentation of prison rape through the Ruiz case as a way to rewrite and rethink the prisoners' rights movement. And so this work contributes to that scholarship by advancing the argument that we really can't fully assess the carceral state nor the prisoners' rights movement until we also come to terms with the centrality of prison rape as a state-orchestrated design that privileged white prisoners with the power to use sexual violence to dehumanize prisoners of color. So those are those are the major interventions of this book. In what various ways does your work explore the intersection of law and social movements? Mm, that's a very important question. So I don't consider law merely as a product or a single thing, but rather rather as a process. Uh, historians have long been drawn to studies of citizenship to think about how different groups have experienced inclusion and exclusion through race, ethnicity, gender, or sexuality. But to those categories of citizenship, my work also adds criminality and the demand from prisoners that prison can't deny citizenship, constitutionality, and indeed civil rights. So it places firmly the prisoners' rights movement within a civil rights framework. Now, to do that, I had to look at a number of affidavits, depositions, a massive letter-writing campaign where prisoners wrote state politicians, civil rights attorneys, the governor, 
and family members as a way to create documentation, uh, again, to counter that narrative that the prison system so loudly pronounced that their systems were modern, their agribusiness narrative was really a narrative of modernity. And these prisoners instead wanted to use the law to make the argument that no, they were anarchistic examples of 19th century slavery extending into the 20th century. So uh, I look at prisoner documentation, litigation, and legal testimony, not just as a legal product, but rather as a transformative and political process, as a process, and one that evolved through cumulative phases of individual consciousness, truth-telling, solidarity, and collective resistance. What is the legal predicate for prisoners' rights? There's been some, say, confusion, but perhaps a little bit of overemphasis on a Virginia state decision known as Ruffin v. Commonwealth of Virginia. This decision in 1871 out of the Virginia Supreme Court declared that a prisoner was a slave of the state and that a prisoner then was civilly dead and had no legal standing. This had to do with a prisoner named Woody Ruffin attempting escape and killing a guard. And the defense argued that the prison followed the prisoner wherever he may go over the idea of concept known as vintage. But this predicate for the denial of prisoners' rights is a little overstated. It was really a hands-off doctrine become a bit of a prima facie narrative about prisoners' rights. And it's, it's complex in that much of the prison does represent a state of slavery, but the courts themselves did not consider prisoners slaves. And that's very important because that becomes the kernel on which they eventually are able to sue for prisoners' rights. So on the one hand, Prisoners make the argument that the condition of their confinement renders them as slaves of the state in a very visceral and real way through their lived experience. But the courts deny civil rights more on the predicate of federalism than slavery. Um, and in fact, when I did some research on this, looking at the concept of civil death and slaves of the state, I found that there were very few cases that actually cited the Ruffin v. Commonwealth case. And as the New York case, Avery v. Everett of 1934, put it, following the legal history of civil death was like walking an unlighted path in the murky dark of contradictory law. And between 1871, so it goes back and forth, and between 1871 and 1964, the Ruffin v. Commonwealth case was only cited approximately 13 to 15 times, most often, though, to refute the slave of the state language. For instance, in the 1933 West Virginia case, State v. Dignan, the court declared quite openly that, and here I quote, the principles of the Ruffin case are not the laws in this state. Here, all men are entitled to the protection of the Constitution, and this protection is not forfeited by even a convict. And then in the case of Moss v. Hire, which was a West Virginia case, 
a prisoner conducting road work was struck by a driver and attempted to sue the driver for damages. And the defendant cited Ruffin, saying that the prisoner was civilly dead and therefore not a citizen and could not sue for damages. But in its ruling, the court cited cases where ex-prisoners had successfully sued for personal or property damages, as well as the fact that a prisoner, unlike a slave, could hold property. And as such, they made the argument quite firmly that a prisoner was not a slave, drawing heavily on the 1909 Westbrook v. Georgia case, which said explicitly that, quote, the convict occupies a different attitude from the slave towards society. He is not mere property without any civil rights, but has all the rights of an ordinary citizen, which are not expressly or necessarily by implication taken from him by law. So the reason why these are so important, these cases, Westbrook v. Georgia, and also the higher case, are because they reject the Ruffin v. Commonwealth case of slaves of the state, and they allow a prisoner eventually to sue in federal court, but only after the intervention of the Supreme Court in the case of first Robinson v. California in 1962, and then Cooper v. Pate in 1964. Nonetheless, there's sort of a two-sided story here of prisoners experiencing their confinement as if they were slaves, not being paid for their labor, experiencing corporal punishment, working particularly in on southern prisons like Texas, in fields of former plantations, living on the grounds of former plantations, ensconced in the southern driver system, bound up in the trustee system that gave certain privileges to prisoners, particularly powerful white prisoners, while buying and selling other prisoner bodies quite wantonly in the sex trade. So it's a two-sided story of how the law sees the condition of prisoners not as slaves, and eventually granting them the opportunity to sue for civil rights, but prisoners creating even their legal argument that they were being treated as slaves of the state and pursued a social movement within the law on those grounds. Now, could you tell us about Ruiz v. Estelle and what came after? Well, that is a long answer, but I will try to keep it short. So the case went to trial in 1978, but it was filed in 1972. But Ruiz v. Estelle is part of a longer legal evolution and trajectory of prisoners' rights cases. Uh, Prior to the Second World War, the courts, by and large, at both the federal and state level, maintained what was known as a hands-off doctrine of non-intervention into the conditions of state captivity. But beginning in the 1960s, with the shift towards a rights-based ideology of the Supreme Court under Warren, prisoner activists turned to Section 1983 of the 1871 Civil Rights Act, which allowed citizens to sue states in federal courts for violations 
of constitutional rights. And there were a number of cases, Robinson v. California being maybe one of the culminating cases in 1962 that made prison susceptible to the Eighth Amendment's prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. And then in 1964, extending civil rights to prisoners became a national issue when a Muslim prisoner in Illinois named Thomas X. Cooper was barred from access to the Quran. And um, as Gilbert Felber has shown in his new book, Those Who Know Don't Say, the Nation of Islam had long been actively organizing black prisoners around religious, racial, and personal transformation. The story of Malcolm X conversion in the 1950s Massachusetts penitentiary is just one of many. In any event, the decision in Cooper v. Pate in 1964 allowed federal courts to intervene into um, state prison systems. And I argue that this really did for prisoners' rights what Brown v. Board of Education had done 10 years earlier for the role of federal courts in state civil rights. And within a decade of this decision, the Supreme Court Justices Brian White in the decision Wolf v. McDonald argued that, quote, there is no iron curtain drawn between the Constitution and the prisons of this country, end quote. And so in the aftermath of this decision, prisoners' rights suits increased from only about 218 nationally in 1966 to over 18,000 by 1984. Between 1970 and 1996, the number of suits leapt an astonishing 400%. And in, in the story that I tell in Texas, the implementation of this opportunity for prisoners to sue state systems in federal court was manifested first by a single prisoner named Fred Cruz. Fred Cruz had gone to prison at a young age. He had only had an eighth grade education but he became self-taught. And part of the centrality of this book's argument is that prisoners engage in their own kind of carceral rehabilitation, I call it, by engaging in reading not only the law, but philosophy, reading Frantz Fanon, much of the black radical critiques of colonialism, And they developed what Robin Spencer has called in her work on black power, a kind of mind change, a shifting ideology of who they were through both their philosophical, political, but also legal education. And they became their own attorneys, filing writs of habeas corpus. And in Texas, they were known as writ writers for this fact. And Cruz is really sort of the beginning point of this effort in Texas, but he makes a common ally outside of the system. So this is also a story of how people within an institution make allies outside of even the oppressive environment of prison by meeting Francis Freeman Gillet, who is a white attorney, part of uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society and an anti-poverty program. And she also held the prestigious Reginald Smith Fellowship which allowed her to train in poverty law. So the two of them pair together, and they began a series of cases, 
on legal access to legal materials and attorneys, which was otherwise strictly denied. Prison solitary, which in Texas, prison solitary meant eating only once every three days, being put into a stark cell in the darkness, thrown in naked, being starved. Many prisoners fell into states of mental despair. And also they countered the prison system's denial of religious freedom and observation, as Fred Cruz had also converted to Buddhism. The result of these cases was that the system decided to gather together all of Jalay's clients onto a single wing as a way to isolate them. They turned towards Cold War ideologies of containment and quarantine and tried to isolate them. But of course, isolating them only created a kind of intellectual, social, and legal school for more legal work against the prison system. And out of this group of prisoners creates a sort of cadre, an intellectual cadre of writ writers. And it's one of the students of Fred Cruz was David Ruiz, who writes, after being in solitary for nearly a year, a writ that became Ruiz v. Estelle. And I have the original copy of that writ. And this case, Ruiz v. Estelle, which was joined by the Justice Department in an amicus curiae brief, became the largest and longest civil rights trial in the history of American jurisprudence up to that point, convening in October 1978 and adjourning in late December 1980. It included testimonies for over 349 witnesses, over 100 were prisoners, and lengthy expert testimony as well. And at the heart of this case was a struggle over how the prison system divided its prison labor through racial privilege and power that rewarded its enforces and subjected the regular prison population to harsh labor regimes. So that effort that the prisoners had made to counter the prison narrative of agribusiness efficiency and low cost was countered during the trial with their slaves of the state narrative. And doing so really challenged the policing powers of the states as broadly enumerated residual powers of the 10th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. As such, what this work does is that it pits national judicial power against state executive and legislative control, while also extending civil rights and constitutional protections, even to those convicted of a crime. And I think it's, it's important to note that in the aftermath of Ruiz, and during the time of Ruiz, most of these sweeping federal court interventions that declared state systems, state, state prison systems, as unconstitutional, we call these total comprehensive cases, come out of the American South. Federal courts found eight of the 11 states of the American South as having unconstitutional prisons or prison systems, six totality of conditions cases in Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Texas. Others had their flagship prisons flagged as unconstitutional, but only four of the 39 states outside of the South had been subject to a similar totality of conditions, interventions, and these were Alaska, 
Delaware, New Mexico, and Rhode Island. So while non-Southern prisons definitely suffered from prison abuse and severe brutality, the federal court had its gaze focused on the Southern prison system and the civil rights attorneys and prisoners themselves were able to successfully cast Southern prisons as really as anarchistic examples of Southern brutality that denied civil and constitutional rights. What does your studies focus on the Texas prison system due to the historical narrative? Mm-hmm. Well, as I mentioned, it centers labor and prison profitability as a crucial organizing feature of mass incarceration. And since it considers prison labor also as the site of resistance as well as the focus of repression, it considers labor as a system of, of division that highlighted the ways in which the prison creates racial hierarchy. As Foucault would say, eliminates that which has already been eliminated. As such, it's really the first historical work that takes prison rape seriously, and not just as a function of prisoner pathology. It also recasts the nature and periodization of the struggle. The prisoners' rights movement that I study occurred after the Attica prison uprising, for the most part, that 1971 turning point that scholars have sort of benchmarked as the decline of prison radicalism and the prisoners' rights movement. But my narrative of prisoner activist continues into the early 1980s, where the southern prison system reorients its disciplinary model from the agricultural Jim Crow disciplinary regime to one centered on Cold War era militarization. I also name a wide system of violence within the state as carceral violence. And this is a broad category that includes state-sanctioned corporal punishment, daily physical abuse, coerced and unpaid labor, torture, such as the practice of handcuffing prisoners to overhead bars where their bodies are hung suspended overnight, sleep deprivation, starvation, in isolation and, and solitary cells. And it suggests then this larger history that carceral violence has survived attempts at reform and yet perpetually clings to the prison for historical reasons that the public and future policymakers should know. So how do you read legal and state documentation through the lens of prisoner resistance? Well, I think, as I mentioned earlier, that I think about prisoner documentation, litigation, and legal testimony, not just as a legal product, but as a transformative process. And that I draw on scholars who've thought a lot about how individuals change and transform. And doing this kind of legal documentation was at first an individual process. One person would do it, knowing and thinking that their experience was theirs and theirs alone. But then they would have to maybe find someone who knew the law, someone like Fred Cruz, or another writ writer that I write about, a bank robber turned documentarian within the system named Lawrence Pope. And they would realize that other prisoners experienced the same thing. And then they would file that documentation 
and it became a testimony, what I call testimonies of resistance, drawing on uh, Mario T. Garcia's conceptualization of oral histories themselves as testimonios, he called them, which he said, and I quote, are collective in nature because they address collective struggles. And so to that definition, this book adds legal documentation as testimonies of resistance as a kind of politics of truth that draws on the ways in which legal work was also political work, was transformative, and moved the individual from their own plight to a wider effort at collective resistance. What primary discourses embodied the social justice campaigns emanating out of prisons? Well, this work takes up what Dan Berger has called a strategy of of visibility to look at how the prisons as slavery narrative, which was happening all over the country. It was happening uh, at Attica. uh, It was happening in Soledad. George Jackson fomented it, but to look at how that was applied in Texas and how that was applied in the American South. And across the American South, the charge that prisons constituted 20th century slavery had some very literal physical manifestations. Southern prisoners forced them to work on former plantations. That's where the site of many Texas's prisons were. They were not paid at all. They worked in agriculture. They picked the cash crop of cotton. They worked under white prison bosses who were openly armed. They faced routine corporal punishment and state-orchestrated sexual assault. And while prisoners everywhere went from what Angela Davis called the prison of slavery to the slavery of prison, prisoners in the U.S. South underwent a distinct geographical imprisonment that made their legal condition as slaves of the state a visceral indictment against Southern prison practices. And so Southern prisoners' rights campaigns drew on their own geographical, physical history tied to the Southern plantation regime, tied to 19th century slavery to make the argument that they were not slaves and that they were entitled to civil rights. As such, this work then really kind of draws on the historiography of slavery to offer the important lens of change over time, region, and space as an intervention to carceral studies. You know, from popular documentaries like the recently released 13th to scholarly narratives, there's been a a tendency to sort of stress uniformity, uh, an important stress. It, It creates collective resistance. But this uniformity runs the risk of flattening historical difference in regional and space into a singular expression of racial oppression that operates at the same way at all times and all places. But I, I draw upon, as a former student of his, Ira Berlin's work in the essay, Time, Space, and the Evolution of African American Society. And in that essay, Berlin argued that slavery had to consider 
change over time and space as a way to not only analyze through a, a more historic lens, but to understand that resistance was born out of the particular place and nature of how slavery operated, because it did not operate the same time in all places. In the same way, incarceration, particularly before 1980, did not operate the same way in all times and in all places, and therefore the resistance against it changed from place to place, and the level of success in that effort changed from place to place. How does federalism play out in your narrative? And how does your story connect to the punitive turn in sentencing and drug laws? Well, first of all, what Ruiz Villastel does in the prisoner testimony that evolved over two decades of resistance is that it delivers a decisive victory for, for civil rights and does something unthinkable. And this is where my book is different than Robert Perkinson's work, Texas Tough, is that it dismantles effectively after 1985 everything that made Texas a uniquely Southern system. It dismantles the uh, building tender convict guard system. It dismantles agricultural labor as the center of the prison system. It dismantles racial segregation as an organizing feature of Southern prisons. It dismantles the denial of legal work and legal access for prisoners. And it reshapes it, though, very quickly, because the prison system is, and this is one of the key arguments that I make, is resistant to reform. In fact, it, one might say it's immune to reform, because it rises again like a carceral phoenix, I argue, on the ashes of the old southern plantation regime to create a militarized prison. So what happened in the aftermath of Ruiz was that prisoners became trapped between federal justice on the one hand and the carceral state as controlled by state legislators on the other. So it became an argument over federalism itself. And uh, what the state did, and, and, I, and this included both Southern Democrats who were beholden to the prison plantation and new New South Republicans after 1980, what the state did is that engaged in what I call carceral massive resistance, where while the federal judge had declared in no uncertain terms that the Texas prison system was unconstitutional, the state simply denied it, resisted, and refused to implement the orders of the Ruiz case. And so for nearly six years, between 1980 and 1986, prisoners were trapped within this struggle over mass incarceration in the state and the effort of the state to engage in carceral massive resistance. And in this moment, the system is also vastly expanding, where prisoners are trapped in a growing system where they are in cells meant for one or two people that are overcrowded with as many as five or six people. In fact, the system was growing so quickly because of mass incarceration and changes in law that prisoners were housed in large tent cities that sprawled across the prison system 
and one of the last moments of violence between building tenders and regular prisoners was a moment that I call the Battle of, of Tent City in the early 1980s. But because of that, they were trapped in this system. And the state responded in two ways. The Democrats just resisted through a process of carceral massive resistance. Republicans, though, under the leadership of William Clements, finally, finally in 1986, decided to agree to a consent order and to acknowledge that, in fact, the prison system was inherently violent and that it suffered under the building tender regime. But as part of their effort, the Republicans knowingly expanded the prison system, knowingly. While the Ruiz case had offered a ruling by the judge that all prison systems in the state had to have prisons under 95% capacity, the Republicans used this as an opportunity to build more prisons, not to reduce the prison population, which was the intent of Judge Justice, but they used it to build more prisons and to expand the prison system. Within this moment, too, was the development of prison gangs. And prison gangs are normally cast in Texas in the 1980s as a function of a power vacuum, as arriving outside of mantlement of the building tender system. But by looking at the development of the Aryan Brotherhood and their effort to knowingly track down, hunt, and carcerally assassinate African-American and Chicano prisoners engaged in prison work strikes, engaged in writ writing and civil rights suits, the prison system, in essence, outsourced carceral violence to silence the radical prisoners' rights movement that demanded humanity and civil rights for prisoners and responded with brutal and murderous violence through the Aryan Brotherhood. Now, you know, I should say that scholars of public policy have cast this litigation through a kind of paradox narrative and an unintended consequence narrative, where federal judges inadvertently contributed to the onset of mass incarceration by increasing the prison system's capacity to incarcerate more people. Within this narrative, scholars like Margot Schlanger, Heather Schoenfeld, have argued that the acceptance of federal court orders against state prison systems allowed state leaders to claim that they had removed the prison system's most vicious and brutal features and that the state now recognized the right of prisons and that it was humane. And a prison system that claimed it was free of brutality therefore became less susceptible to alarmist charges over its ever-expansive growth. And therefore, we can find the kernel of mass incarceration in this unintended consequence or paradox of prisoner rights cases. But I argue that while the Ruiz case shared some similarities with, for instance, the Florida narrative that Heather Schoenfeld offers, the difference is the effort of carceral massive resistance that Southern Democrats actively resisted federal court orders and new Southern Republicans consciously thwarted judicial interventions to reduce prison populations in favor 
of retrenched political designs that knowingly and quite openly constructed mass incarceration within a Reagan-esque law and order and get tough political contents. And so therefore, by placing prisoner litigations under the lens of social movements and prisoner-based civil rights rather than top-down public policy or political elite lens, this book really reconsiders the degree to which the path to mass incarceration was politically uncontested. How does your narrative help us understand the origins of mass incarceration? Right. It's a very complicated narrative. As I mentioned, some scholars of the prisoners' rights cases, particularly Heather Schoenfeld, have made the argument that there is a case of unintended consequences, that the intervention of federal court created an expanded bureaucracy within the criminal justice system, and that expanded bureaucracy created, in fact, more prison growth, more prison development, more prison construction, and harsher sentencing laws. And as I had mentioned previously, my book is really about something different, which is not about federal bureaucracies or even state bureaucracies expanding prisons, but rather Democrats beholden to the old prison plantation refusing to implement federal court decisions, even in the 1980s, into the 1980s, and holding on to the prison plantation through carceral massive resistance, is what I call it. And then new Republicans like William P. Clements making a determination that they will grow the prison system, even though the federal court was interested in limiting mass incarceration by making no prison hold more than 90, 95% of its capacity. Court wanted to reduce prison population and new Republicans simply decided that they would use that as a rationale to build more prisons, quite in defiance of the court. I think it's important when we think about this connection to mass incarceration to realize that while some very popular authors like Michelle Alexander have made arguments about the war on drugs and the role of federal power, that it's in the states where we see the most prison growth, that the states hold more than 1.35 million people in cages, behind bars in prison. And in fact, the amount of those people within prison who are incarcerated for drugs only represent about 20% of that population. So the role of federal drug laws and the war on drugs is certainly part of mass incarceration, but it's not all of it. Moreover, there's been an argument about the role of the federal government through the LEAA. The LEAA was founded through the LBJ legislation of 1968, and the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration gave grants from the federal government to states. But we find that this federal largesse is also uneven. In the writing of this book, I looked at the LEAA annual reports and discovered that during the decade of the 1970s, from 1969 to 1979, the amount that went to states varied. And what I found was that the southern states received the least amount of LEAA funds. And yet, it's in the American South where prisons 
grew to the largest number, the largest number of people, and indeed the incarceration rate in many southern states, particularly Texas, outstrips other states. Alabama, for instance, over that 10-year period, received only about 62 million, whereas by contrast, California, which was the state that received the most money from LEAA, received about 362 million. So it's uneven. So one of the one of the arguments that my books make is that you need to look at more local causes and not just look to the federal government, that we need to look to the states. When we look at the states, we see how individual state laws developed prisons, sometimes outside of what the federal government was doing. And in Texas, they passed two laws, one in 1967 and then another in 1977. And what these laws did is they began to strip away an internal mechanism known as good time. And the reason why that's important is that good time rewarded prisoners for the amount of time they were in prison plus extra days. And how the system incentivized its trustee convict guard system was to reward more good time to prisoners who acted as convict guards. So in other words, their freedom was their reward for their service. And uh, in the late 1970s, they begin to strip that away. And once the Ruiz decision comes, they completely strip that away. So not only are more people going to prison, but they're going to prison for a longer period of time. And in this way, then, I draw on some of the political and policy history about the myth of the weak state that the state is not just focused on a centralizing federal power, but that it's in the individual state power, what's enumerated in the Tenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, where policing powers reside in the states. And if we're going to undo the thicket of mass incarceration, I argue we have to look to the state. Now, since these laws were passed and the Ruiz decision was made, Texas leaped in the number of people who went to prison. From 1967 to 1980, the state's incarceration rate leapt from 113 to 210. And many of these prisoners were then living in double and triple cells or sleeping on the floor. Five people to a room meant for one prisoner. And since the Ruiz decision, Texas has grown its prison population almost more than any other state in the nation. During the 1990s, for instance, Texas led the nation with an annual growth rate of 11%, which was twice the average annual growth rate of 11%. In the 2000s, the incarceration rate in Texas had gone as high as 730 prisoners per 100,000 residents. And since the 1980s, Texas has led the nation in the number of privatized prisons, the number of people in super maximum 23-hour-a-day cell lockdown, prison construction, and state-sanctioned execution. Indeed, in, in 2016, Texas had 5,832 people in full cell isolation for 23 hours a day, seven days a week making the state second only to Florida in the number of people held in those individual cages. 
And of those 2,000, and of those 297,600 people were held in total cell isolation for more than six years. And sociological or social science studies have shown that people held in total isolation suffer from sleep deprivation, deep levels of depression, hallucinations, and a whole number of other health aliments. So what this book then does is to think about how the development of these individual cell arrangements, new modalities of carceral violence, I call it, these administrative segregation wings called in other prisons, supermaximum prisons, were bound up in the struggle over prisoners' rights because the prison begins to implement this new device right as it's having to deal with the federal court intervention in Ruiz and a prison population that has shifted from prisoners' rights and prisoner politicization to an increased militarized development of gangs on the one hand by the prisoners themselves and the prison administration implementing gang intelligence units, gang injunctions, SWAT units within individual prisons, and developing a militarized response to prisoner organizations. So when we think about where we are today in all of this, one of the arguments that my book makes is to connect the current debate and struggle with the modern-day system of the carceral state and mass incarceration with the prisoners' rights movement of the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s. And I end the book by discussing two prison strikes, two national prison strikes, the first of their kind uh, as being national in scope. First was in 2016, and the second in 2018. And in 2016, prisoners connected the past with the present by initiating the strike on September 9th, 2016. And this was a precipitous date, 45 years to the day of the Attica prison uprising of 1971. And uh, when they initiated this strike, the International Workers of the World Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee the IWWOC and another group called the Free Alabama Movement, who had done a lot of organizing for these strikes, named their national protest as a call to action against slavery in America. Once again, drawing on that deeper and longer history that prisoners had made across uh, the country, but with some particular success in the courts, in the American South during the 1960s, 1970s, and even into the 1980s, that they were slaves of the state. And again, a second prison strike in 2018 made a similar argument when the Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, an organization for prisoners meant to provide legal aid, developed a strike after in South Carolina three prisoners who were isolated alongside rival gang members were killed. And there, the jailhouse lawyers speak organization called Prisons War Zone, that prisons in America are a war zone. And they called out, for instance, the development of the Prison Litigation Reform Act, an act signed during the Clinton administration 
that makes cases like Ruiz almost impossible to have in the future by denying repeated claims in courts, by raising the level of filing fees, by limiting the amount that lawyers who were to take up these claims might receive, and doing just everything possible that a state could do to deny a prisoner's claim in court. And that is one of the things where the Jailhouse Lawyer Speak organization just in 2018 aimed this national strike against the Prison Litigation Reform Act. So all told, what I argue is that these nationwide strikes of 2016 and 2018 do is they draw upon a longer history of prisoner resistance and craft a renewed historical analogy that sees incarceration as slavery and as slave labor. And that from Attica to the Texas work strike surrounding Ruiz in 1917 to these two nationwide strikes in 2016 and 2018, prisoners have offered this repeated historical refrain that they are not not slaves, that incarceration cannot deny a person their right to humanity, and that coerced prison labor remains a constitutional fixture that requires a reconsideration of what constitutes civil rights, making a loud declaration that prisoners are not slaves. Okay, well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Well, thank you very much. It really was my pleasure.